Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to talk about a ton of different things, but usually I like to start with the individual's journey because I think that sort of gives us a, an idea of, of your background and kind of, you know, what you dedicate your life to, right? I think, you know, I'm fortunate when I get to talk to people, they've, they're at a time in their life where they've really dedicated a lot of their career, but also, you know, their life. And, and that's uh, really interesting to hear about. So let's talk about maybe a little bit your journey before Finca, if, if you want to talk about that, or, or, or how you even got into the world of sort of finance and, and really impact investing in particular. Absolutely. I struggle to remember um, <laughs> what my life before Finca was like, but um, first, I just want to say thanks for inviting me on to talk about the work that we do. And um, I think that we're at honestly, a, a pivotal moment. And I know that everybody thinks that they're always at a pivotal moment, but I think we are at a pivotal moment in financial inclusion um, in the context of COVID today. So mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for the platform. I suppose I had a, a relatively traditional path moving through um, an MBA program focused on traditional finance, um, moving then into strategy consulting. And I loved all of the technical aspects of the work that I was doing. And I'm so grateful for all of the people that I met and the experiences that I had. But I had to come to terms with the fact in my 30s that I was actually a really purpose-driven person. Mm -hmm. um, and I, by chance, an old friend of mine called me and invited me to interview with this organization, Finca International. And she said, you have to talk to them. You have to talk to them. And I, I went into the offices um, in downtown Washington and they were really looking for this perfect blend of social impact and financial sustainability. And they had mm -hmm. figured out a way, um, I was pretty new to microfinance and you know they were implementing this globally, figuring out a way to actually help people, um, but doing it in a financially responsible and financial, financially sustainable way. And you know, for me, I always knew that finance was a really powerful tool to affect social change and to help people do better. But a lot of my experience with finance was really about making wealthy people better off. Right. Um, and, and frankly, seeing a lot of people being taken advantage of by their vulnerabilities to, you know, you know, predatory financial institutions. Mm -hmm. to be right. And yep. so when I met the Finca people, I was like, this is something that I have to do with my life. And it has been my passion ever since. Um, you know, we have grown this organization um, to reach almost 3 million people annually around the globe. And we have data that shows that, you know, people are better off through the support and the, the financial products and services that we offer. And, you know, microfinance, I think has been something that everybody has talked about for a really long time. By the development community, it was viewed, I think, initially as a silver bullet because of this sustainability aspect. And it hasn't been a silver bullet, but it has mm -hmm. had a really material impact on giving people choice and helping them um, to make decisions that improve the financial health of themselves and their families. Um, and it's um, it's work that I'm very passionate about and that my team is really passionate about. I want to maybe for, first start with, it, you kind of mentioned predatory lending or, or predatory practices by banks that we know of, right? Or, or the sort of financial system yeah. in America. And when you, you know, were first going in and looking at different, right, different countries and, and different ways to, to loan money or lend money or how to do it a little better, was, was that a, an issue that you saw? Was it the same 
when you looked at another country and how things were set up? Were there the same sort of predatory aspects going on? And was that something that the organization really came in to that country or that region and kind of changed how everything, like the foundation of how banking was done there? Or was things set up there that they can come in and, and kind of hit the ground running different in different countries and that's just yeah. the reality um yeah. in some countries i think the financial infrastructure is is more developed and in others it's less but we target countries where access to financial services is really limited in most cases there might have been informal finance networks um you know there are tried and true methodologies that are used in rural areas especially for people um to loan money to each other um there have always been money lenders um but most of the clients especially in the early days that we were working with you know they just didn't have access to to funding mm-hmm. and and for a long time i think people viewed particularly, you know, poor people who didn't have a lot of assets as being a credit risk. Mm -hmm. But what the the founders were quickly able to identify is that if you're making business loans in particular, and we do really focus on on giving people loans to grow their enterprises and employ others. The the credit quality is really excellent. And so looking across the landscape of microfinance, you know, traditionally, um, you know, you have 95% or even higher repayment rate um, associated with those loans because people don't have a lot of choices um, and, um, and they really need access to that capital and they have very high margins, small business. And so they they can, you know, afford to borrow that money and put it into their business and resell the goods and services and then, you know, reinvest more. That repayment rate and the, you know, the opportunity that we create, you know, on average, our um, clients create 2.4 jobs, you know, Hmm. for for, per enterprise. Um, And I know that doesn't sound like a lot coming from the perspective that we have of these massive enterprises that that are funded. But in the countries that we work in, most people don't have access to formal employment opportunities. And so that job creation, even if it's just a tiny business, um, is super, super important. And it it gives them the ability to save. Um, You know, we have grown our deposit base across um, our business so much um, since we've been able to get deposit taking licenses. And, and I think that is probably the most telling thing. You know, a lot of times people have the perception that people with very little can't save and that's not true. And they actually need a safe place to save. Um, right. And that's one of the things that we really try and emphasize is, you know, coaching people through the process of what it means to save and what it means to borrow and how to do it in a way that helps them um, to build their financial health. Has historically, the when, when you go into a country or, or, or a region, are you going in and, and building like physical locations in, you know, yeah. rural Haiti or or rural sub-Saharan yep. Africa, like like, give me an idea of, of what it actually looks like on the ground. And and like you said, I mean, is it really looking at countries and going into a city, or actually, you know, the very rural areas, obviously, where there's going to be you know a ton of different hurdles uh, to yeah. even get banked. 
that well that and that is the truth um and we should talk about the rural areas and the promise of, of digital and the challenges mm-hmm. of digital yeah, later on. Right. but you know look typically what we do is we go into a market into a country and and we say where is the business happening um and for the kinds mm. of clients that we serve we tend to focus on um marketplaces you know, where people are trading very actively. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and yeah, we do have offices. They're not your typical big banking halls. Um, but over the years in some of our countries, particularly as we've mobilized deposits, we've, you know, we've built big branches. But most of our work takes place still um, in the field. And it's with people um, mm-hmm. who go out and meet with clients um, and see what's happening in the marketplace. So just to give you a clear example, I was once traveling in in Eastern Congo and uh, I was I had come over the border from Rwanda um, into Congo, walked into this town called Goma and the energy and the amount of trading that was taking place hmm. in that market was just so intense. And I immediately, you know, reached out to, to people and said, this is a place where, you know, things <laughs> needs to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what you do is you look at where is there not a lot of access and where is there a lot of entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, where would we best be, you know, located um, in order to meet those people's needs. And I think, you know, traditionally the big bank really have hesitated to go out into rural areas because the population density is really low. And, and because we've had this ability to, to travel around, we have focused a lot on rural areas. But what's really interesting about what's happening right now, and and for me, frankly, like the most exciting thing is, you know, it's still really hard to reach out to people in rural areas and it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's really hard for those clients because, you know, if they want to go deposit a dollar, getting on a bus and traveling for two hours to go to a bank branch um, and stand in line and leave their business and leave their kids, that just becomes like a losing proposition for them. And so what we've been able to do with technology over the last couple of years is implement an agent banking model where people can basically go into a mom and pop shop in their local community um, or walk across the street or whatever it is. And they can, you know, using our POS devices, they can make that dollar deposit and just be away from their business for, you know, a couple of minutes. Hmm. And we've seen, you know, Obviously, it helps with savings mobilization a lot. It helps with people joining the formal financial sector full stop because they feel like they have access to their money when they need it. And the other kind of ancillary benefit, um, we did a research study in Congo. And what we found was that by having female agents, it actually hmm. helps to mobilize women's participation. Right. Um, yep. Because they were like, oh, I'm talking to somebody that makes me feel super comfortable, that works and lives in my community. And they became a really great outreach um, for us to expand that. And and so, you know, it's kind of like, how do you take technology and leverage those opportunities to get lower costs, but also to make it a lot more accessible for people? And, and that's happening a lot right now. It's a great segue of what I wanted to go into, because traditionally, banks are <laughs> very reluctant 
to you know build new technologies into their infrastructure and their companies that, but at this point you know they have to do it but they're probably a decade late really yeah. so let's talk a little bit about you know the digital transformation you know from you guys's perspective maybe what are the pros what are the cons i guess what have you seen that's been positive maybe what is you see that been negative and maybe you know where we're going to go the next you know 5 years or so yeah for sure well you're talking about the subject of my dreams and my nightmares yeah Um, Yeah, you know, look, I think that especially during COVID, the benefits of of digital access are just huge because people can send money to each other, you know, they can check their account balances, um, they can go, like I said, to agents and, and withdraw money and make deposits without having to travel. We've implemented call centers um, that have done a lot of outreach to our clients, both in terms of um, health PSAs, but also, you know, just walking them through what's happening with the pandemic. Um, and, you know, it has paid huge dividends for us without a doubt um, in terms of convenience for our clients and communication and safety. I think that a lot of what's happening in the digital space right now is focused on providing people with fast credit over mobile devices. And, and we see a lot of folks crowding into the space. And, you know, candidly, we are experimenting with mobile credit ourselves. And so I, I want to be totally upfront about that. Um, but I don't think that most of that credit is because the data is limited, is focused on consumer debt. And mm. I don't think that that is, if we're ultimately trying to build people's Yeah, that's, that's health, not the best way to have first entry. It's, it's not that, the best yeah. way to have first entry. And so um, I think for me, the, the big challenge, but also, you know, the huge opportunity for us as we move into the digital space is how do you translate the power of our old model, which mm-hmm. was about community resilience and people providing, honestly, emotional and business support to each other to make healthy choices that improve their financial health. That was that was the wheelhouse of what all of microfinance was about in the past, was creating these groups of people that cross-guaranteed and that coached each other to make really good choices. We need to figure out how we do that on digital platforms and, and create that same sort of sense of community and support and accountability. That's one. And I think that's a mm-hmm. huge opportunity. And frankly, there have been some great experiments around it, but nobody's really cracked the code on that yet. And then I think that the the second part of it is most of the digital interventions are focused on people who are better off. So, you know, using a USSD phone um, to make mobile transactions, we have data that shows that, you know, most of the clients are using their phones to send and receive money, um, which is a huge, you know, improvement over how they used to have to do it. Um, But that's not a super strong use case for, you know, getting people to really convert their life to digital financial services. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, And the big challenge is in most of these countries, you know, 
getting cash in and out of the system is still a necessity. And there aren't ATMs everywhere and there aren't mm-hmm. bank branches everywhere. And so you've got to come up with really creative solutions to how people can get their money in and out of the system at a relatively low cost. And you and I both know, you know, ATMs have mostly gone the way of the dodo. And if you use an ATM mm-hmm. that's not in your bank network, it costs you 2 or $3, yep. right? Well, that's all well and good if you have that kind of disposable income. But if you are somebody who only has you know, a little bit of money, those kinds of fees are just not tenable. And so I think that's the, that's the real fundamental challenge for everybody who's trying to develop the digital financial services with our target market in mind is how do we make that system work on behalf of those clients and get the costs down? And, and there are some big structural hurdles, you know, there's connectivity, there's digital literacy, um, there's interoperability. Um, we have a lot of amazing partners who are working on those issues um, alongside us. It's going to take people really focusing on it and saying we need to break these barriers for those who are economically disenfranchised down or else we're going to leave people out. And, you know, there was big blowback here in the United States. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, because a lot of a lot of merchants were like, we're going to go digital only. Mm-hmm. Um, and communities said, well, but there are poor people living in our communities that don't have phones, can't afford phones, and don't have credit cards. And they're basically being shut out of those businesses because they don't have that access. And I think that's something that we need to be very attuned to. I just want to kind of let let the listeners understand, understand the scope of your organization, 9,000 employees across 20 countries is, is quite, is quite a massive production. And you see a lot of regions and a a lot of countries, which is there, is there one that is maybe ahead of the curve that, you know, things have, have really worked in this region, in this country better than others, whether it be, you know, policy is, is just well done or the execution is easier and, whatever it may be, but is there, is there one sort of case study of, of a country or a region doing things like really well? And you're like, I wish we can copy and paste that across <laughs> many other places. Right. What's the secret sauce? Um, yeah. So yeah, let me just give the listeners a little bit more context. And I think you did a really awesome job in terms of the breadth of the organization, but, you know, just to be super clear, Uh, We work in countries where um, access to financial services is typically below 50% or much more. And so you're talking about a huge portion of the population that's unbanked. And we we tend to work in pretty high-risk, volatile places. And I I will name only a few. Um, You know, some are are more stable than others. Um, But, you know, we're in Pakistan, we're in Afghanistan, we're in Kyrgyzstan, we're in Congo. they're really challenging places to work, um, but they're also where there's enormous opportunity to have significant financial and social impact at the same time. And they are, I think, mostly relatively undeveloped from the digital financial services standpoint, but but the opportunities are growing there. And I think that there are excellent regulators across the globe. Um, you know, certainly we've had really strong partnerships. I'll just, um, in our, our three showcase countries, Kyrgyzstan, um, DR Congo, and Pakistan, you know, the partnership with the regulators has been fantastic and their openness hmm. to innovation 
that's great such a huge advantage when you have just that alone you know a partner there locally to say yes we we want this we need this let's work together that's like immense and and you know there's there those governments are also you know acutely aware of the need for access to financial services and so they really have been supportive of us but i think that clearly we have a huge focus on local teams. And so when you talk about the 9,000 employees around the world, you know, the vast majority of them, you know, live and work in the countries that we operate in. They're from there. And so they yeah. have a huge connection to their communities. And that is a, a very big contributor to our success um, is the passion that my teams on the ground have for making things different for their home country. And then I think that the last thing, and, the, and this kind of gets back to the digital point that I was making earlier, clearly we've seen a huge move in in Africa in particular, to mm-hmm. upgrade the network connectivity and um, to make it possible for people to use digital financial services. And there's a lot of work happening on interoperability and, and kind of fundamental issues. Um, and that is going to be really critical path um, moving forward, you know, that regulators are helping to support the, the development of financially responsible um, digital financial, you know, digital players who have an interest in helping to partner on driving financial inclusion and helping people to improve the quality of their life. And I think that's a really tricky balance for a lot of the regulators um, and, and, you know, for a lot of the players as well. We're, we're all new to this and we're all trying to figure it out. And, you know, we look at these wonderful examples that we see of, you know, I'll give Ant Financial as an amazing example. Um, But Ant has the benefit of operating in a fully digitized ecosystem. Um, And Mm -hmm. and most countries really don't have that. And so um, we're going to need a lot of partnerships to build out the rails um, to make it possible for people to have that level of security and reliability in their transactions. Is the, is the dream scenario to be just have a Finca app, you know, just one home base that works across <laughs> and many different countries, but, but does that work like how you would want it to right now? Or no. is, yeah. It, it, <laughs> and I imagine, you know, you can't offer certain services in certain countries, like consumer credit, for example, is a very, a very different area to play in. Small business lending is one thing that I think, you know, most people are super positive about. But then when you get into consumer credit and consumer lending, there's, I think there's a lot more, maybe eyebrows are raised a little bit just because of the predatory, you know, in the developed countries that has, you know, bred some bad things, let's say. But how does how does the connectivity really help you as an organization, as a business kind of offer things in one hub, right? To where you can even eliminate having to go to walk to an ATM, right? Or or go do anything physically. That home base, like just from me, right? Like I moved to a different country, like having an app that still my American bank that works great, right? And I have an app here in in Amsterdam and it works amazingly, right? And it could be just from a software engineering standpoint, but also, you know, high-speed internet, all these things coming together that really has this ability to make me have banking like everywhere easily accessible is it more of a connectivity issue yes and no Um, (laughs) uh, don't make me pick look connectivity is a huge issue you look at sub-saharan africa is a great example 
um, the, the penetration of um, even the 2G networks is still pretty low, um, which means that unless you're in an mm-hmm. urban center, yeah. um, you, you know, your ability to use those apps is going to be pretty limited. And, you know, we're seeing super fast growth in the smartphones, which is fantastic, but the smartphones suck up a lot more data. Um, and so I think that until that connectivity has been seriously improved and until the cost of data comes down significantly, that's going to be a big hurdle for poor people. So that's one. Um, then two is, okay, so let's assume that we've got that connectivity issue fixed, which I think we will in pretty short order. Then it becomes around what can people do with that application? And that right. is that is about getting interoperability in place um, that makes it possible for people to send their money to anywhere and not just be inside a closed ecosystem. And, mm-hmm. um, and so that really does require bringing all of the providers to the table um, and having a discussion around, you know, what that looks like. And and I think that's something, you know, again, like Gates is very focused on it. They've been leading, I think, a lot of that dialogue. There are lots of other governments that are super supportive of it, but that really does need to happen or else you end up with a lot of very fragmented small platforms that that don't help enough people. And and that's where the examples of Ant Financial and even um, PESA is the other one, they've gotten critical mass. And that's what makes those tools so useful for all of the clients that access them. Um, And we need to figure out different ways to achieve that critical mass. And then part three is, okay, fine. So we've now got the capability of sending person-to-person payments, business, you know, person-to-business payments. We can do government benefit payments. You can deposit your savings. All of these things are working very nicely. Then it becomes about, are we doing the right thing for people? And this is where I think that financial services and certainly, you know, businesses like ours that are focused on responsible financial inclusion um, have to take a pause and, and look at ourselves in the eye. So one of the things that has kind of landed on me um, in the last many years as I've watched the evolution of financial services, both in the developed and the developing world, is that finance is run by a lot of left brain people who think that people should be rational when they're making financial decisions. (laughs) The science has showed that is But the reality is that most people make decisions, including financial decisions, somewhat emotionally. Mm. And so um, there's a lot of interesting work um, that that I am really trying to plug into on the behavioral aspects of finance. Because our goal is not just to make loans to people. Um, it's not just to give them access to financial tools. We actually want them to help. Well, I want them to improve their financial health. And in order to that, um, we have to really work on those behavioral aspects. And initially, when when Finca started its work, um, all of that coaching and training was taking place face to face. Now Mm -hmm. we've moved to a blended model where we have some face to face, but we're leveraging all of this digital technology. And I dream of the day when (laughs) we can use the digital side 
to help to um, drive those behaviors. And and there's work being done. There's some gamification. Yeah. Um, you know, there are interesting tools like I think you know Mint and others that that do a good job of nudging people. Um, but I think we need to go even beyond that and and figure out ways to really help people, um, even if they are not sitting face to face with another human being. Um, and that's that's the holy grail that I'm looking for. The one thing that makes me nervous and cringeworthy when, when I was in the States, they, uh, you've probably seen this, but like Experian boost thing where they came out with this. Oh, you just like essentially give us more data and we'll boost your credit score yeah. is, is how I looked at it. And I was like, how is this even legal? Like this is a really bad way of getting a people's credit score to them access more credit that they can't. Like it, it was just a very like it it, it really kind of like shook me the very wrong way. And I was like, this is like borderline negligent and should not be legal. So like, how do we do personal credit building ethically? Like that that there has to be a way that it could be done, you know, much better, right? Yeah. Whether it's educational or whatever. I'm, I'm sure you have some more better ideas than Experian Boost has. <laughs> well, um, look, I mean, that's the conundrum of the internet, right? Is that the more you feed the data machine, sure. the more precise the data machine can be in responding to your needs. But the unfortunate thing is that the data machine doesn't always have your best interest at heart, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, no, I, I hear you loud and clear. And I think that, you know, that is, the biggest risk probably that we don't spend enough time talking about. We give a nod to data privacy, um, but but people need to understand that their data is worth money um, right. and that they need to make explicit choices about how they're going to use that data in order to create opportunity for themselves. And, you know, at face value, talking about the Experian example, and, and I actually... I, hadn't followed that but you know the more data companies have the better they can score customers the the, the more accurate you know their assessment of their capability to repay is going to be that's a fact um but the question is is the customer conscious of the fact that they are sharing data um and you know when you look at terms and conditions in particular this is a bugbear for me um and i and i've had this debate honestly with you know even app developers, because mm -hmm. what, they, what they say is, well, you know, the more steps somebody has to go through, the more likely you are to use, lose them as a customer, right? Because people want that instant feedback and gratification. And so most developers are looking for ways to make things as painless and seamless as possible. But it, if you're thinking about terms and conditions and wanting to make sure that people understand the consequences of what they're going through, every single human being that I know, when they open up a long terms and conditions, with the exception of <laughs> our general counsel, you know, they scroll through it as fast as they can and they hit accept at the bottom, right? And, and that's kind of human nature. So we have to figure out ways to one educate people about the the risk of giving up their data and make it a conscious decision and to securing their data and i do think there's a lot of opportunity in in blockchain i'm more or less secretly but publicly obsessed by you know the potential of blockchain that <laughs> um, i i don't have you know we don't have the the resources to focus on it but i'm following what others are doing in this space because 
I think that both with financial information, but also with, you know, personal medical information and, and other things, you know, we have the tools now that should enable people um, to secure their personal history and their data um, in one place and selectively grant access to it, you know, when they need to. Yeah, no, I, I'm all for like, I think data is, is a, a really great way to offer great things. It really does give a great picture of a lot of things. My, my only issue is that if it's not, if it's a false sort of claim of like, oh, my credit score is 590, but if I give you more data, now all of a sudden it's 650. Right. Like your philosophy and your, your knowledge of finance hasn't changed because you gave more data. Right. right? So that, that was my issue with it is that yeah. it, the false sense of that you've done something right. different to better your, right. That right. that's part is that I have the issue with, if you want to give data, I think that's, listen, I'm, I'm for it. I'm, I'm absolutely for it. If, if there's something that's going to come out of it, that is valuable and will actually like, here's all my data. Like, Right. educate me now, right? right? Give me something that I can learn from. Or if I have to answer financial questions, yep. then my score goes up, right? If I take these quizzes, it's a great thing that Coinbase does Yeah, uh, through, yeah. through, through their crypto, to like learn crypto. Like they give you reading materials. And if you answer five questions, you like earn a dollar in this cryptocurrency, right? Yeah. It's a great way to get educated on things. And I think that is where, you know, whether it's Finca or rather, you know, the developer world, even in America still, right? Or the developer world. To me, that's a more beneficial way of doing it and gamifying it is where you can actually just earn currency. You know, if you're giving you data, at least you're getting something from it and you're getting educated from it. It's a great way to like say, hey, you get a benefit by getting our data. We're kind of like paying you to get educated. And you're like, that's a, to me, a much more positive way to go about it. I completely agree with you. I think, you know, this is where um, I believe that, you know, we need to hold ourselves accountable to a higher standard of um, what we want people to get out of financial services. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, look, I, I think that we have always thought about, especially since since the internet really took over, you know, it's about how do you get people to buy more? How do you, you know, how do you speak to their needs in a much more customized way? And and that can be hugely beneficial. It really can. Um, But it can also, it can also cause people to become extremely unsmart about things that they need to be smart about, right? And and I think that that's exactly what you're speaking to, which is how do we up the game and make it a benefit for people to get smarter about the choices that they're making? Um, and, you know, when you look at financial literacy, just generally, I'm super sad to report that most people, you know, they don't just sit down and say, oh, I want to learn about personal finance, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, um, and even if you put them into a classroom setting, um, they don't really retain a lot of the information that they have access to. It is about taking advantage of um, those moments in time when people are specifically interested in a subject and then communicating with them about that um, in a way that addresses the, the issue that they're trying to solve. And the internet 
sorry to say the internet, but technology allows <laughs> us to do that, right? Technology yep. has given us the ability to do that now. And so I think that, you know, there needs to be a lot of collective and individual focus on that's great. And, and let's actually make it possible for people to do better using those tools. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do. Uh, you know, most of the institutions that are focused on financial inclusion um, are really committed to making sure that people understand what they are getting into when they take a loan and they understand what it means to save. Um, and, and I think there's just a lot more that we can do. We are looking for partners that want to chase that goal with us. Um, we've got some amazing partners that we do proof of concepts with locally. There's a lot of great innovation that's taking place, but you know, we're never going to be able, we don't have the knowledge that a Google or a PayPal has um, about mm -hmm. how to manage that data. And I'm super hopeful that you know, some of those big firms are, are going to lean hard into how do we use data for good and, and, and help the rest of us um, solve <laughs> some of these problems. You know? Well, I, I want to end on, on two questions. And the first will be, what have been some of the, I guess, successes and, and, you know, stories of sort of impact that you've seen happen in your time at Finca? Like, what are some of the, the impact metrics that you look at, right? Yeah. Your time at the organization and, and maybe what are some of the successes that you've seen that inspires you to wake up every day and, and do what you do? Well, um, there are personal stories that I've obviously, I, I have the opportunity to travel a lot to the countries that we work in. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'm really fortunate to sit down with different clients. I think that's important to to really meet the people that we're working with and, and understand their stories. And the ones that have always touched me the most are, you know, there are a lot of um, our clients are women um, mm -hmm. and they are so passionate about running their businesses so that they can have a positive impact on their children and their daughters yeah. in particular. And as the mom of two teenage boys, <laughs> I will say, <laughs> you know, um, I, I think that 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 story of creating choice and power for women in particular in countries where um, there's not a lot of choice and enfranchisement really resonates with me. And then there are institutional victories that are humongous. Um, you know, again, going back to the Congo, you know, but we also have a, an office in in Haiti, and you mentioned Haiti mm -hmm. earlier, mm -hmm. you know, but we've done these data studies and, you know, we can show with data that the clients are better off from having worked with us um, than they would have been otherwise. And no, you know, they're not the, they're not the, these huge enterprises, but they've been able to send their kids to school and pay their medical bills and have a better quality of life. It's huge. It's huge. It's, yeah. huge. it's just huge. So that's what makes me get up every day. Well, I'll end a little bit on, on the future and, and maybe what gets you excited. I mean, we talked a lot of you know, about technology and, and fintech and, and what, you know, that world holds for, for the next decade or so. But what are some of the things that are exciting to you and maybe some of the goals that you as an organization want to see happen within, you know, the next decade? We haven't talked about COVID very much. I want to put the COVID marker out there because I think that honestly, it's a thing that I'm very nervous about the impact that that's going to have on financial inclusion uh, for the next coming years. Um, I think that it, it does actually put a lot of it at risk. And there are a lot of people who are falling back into poverty. And, you know, the surveys that we've done with our clients show that a very large proportion of them have had to cut back on 
a lot of their expenses because those economies have just slowed down. And, and I think we have to keep our eye on that. But having said that, you know, moving, let, let's assume, as I think we all have to, that, you know, we will get through this. You know, the, the thing that genuinely excites me the most um, is that we have developed a methodology that allows us to provide people with the services that they need to build their businesses, create employment in their communities, and take care of their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if we can couple that with this digital platform that we were talking about earlier and, and really successfully not just serve people's basic transactional needs, but help to drive behaviors, mm-hmm. we have an opportunity in front of us to actually build a financial services infrastructure in less developed countries that is materially better than the one that um, we have developed um, in in the developed countries that that is more focused on getting people to drive constructive positive behaviors um, and i think that you know when we talked at the beginning i said i think we're at this pivotal moment that is one aspect of this pivotal moment which is we have the opportunity to build things better and we yeah. need to seize that opportunity and take advantage of the fact that people are thinking a lot about what it means to achieve positive social impact. And I think I think we can build a better financial world for millions and millions of people. Well, thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. I wish we had another hour or so to jump into a bunch of other different things, but but I really appreciate you taking the time. Best of luck for for you and the team for for the next, uh, you know, let's say year, because I think that's going to be, if we can get past that, yeah. I think if you could pass the next year without sort of catastrophe and, and devastation that that we we can avoid, um, then I think that like you said, the next the next decade has so much promise if we kind of get it right and take the good aspects out of the financial infrastructure and then develop the developed world, take the good parts out of it, leave the bad parts, and build you know an infrastructure from scratch, right? For yeah. you know, bi- I mean, we're talking billions of people that are still you know, unbanked. And even if they're, even if they're banked, they're probably not banked very well for in some parts of the world that can be so much better. I think it was, I think it was over a billion people are unbanked, but then, you know, again, what are the services and financial inclusion that you can offer for another billion on top of that with technology and data, you know, ethically done very well, right. Without that mindset that, that we might've had in the developed world, but I think there's an advantage kind of starting from scratch a little bit, right? With, with people, there's an advantage there for them, but also businesses that it can be done better, you know? So a hundred percent agree with you, Grant. And, and let's chase that dream. That's the, <laughs> well, you're already doing it. You're already chasing it every day. So, you know, sure. kudos, kudos to that. 